If you've got a Bible, find Acts chapter 5, that's in the New Testament. We're preaching through the book of Acts, and today we're going to be in chapter 5, verses 12 through 42. And I just want to say, as we dive into this, not to make you feel sorry for me, but kind of to make you feel sorry for me, the book of Acts is so hard to preach. And and in fact, we actually tried to preach through the book of Acts in the first two years of our church, and it was literally the worst sermon series that I've ever done in my entire life. Um, in, In fact, if you go to our online sermons and you try to find our podcasts that are like older than three years ago, we don't have any. Have you guys noticed that? And that's because we've put them all in shallow graves, unmarked shallow graves in the desert because they were so terrible. And uh, in particular, when we preached through the book of Acts, it just got bad. It's so hard to teach. It's hard to preach. And my plan was to preach through the whole book of Acts. And I think I got to chapter 20 and just apologized to the church for how bad it was and started preaching something else. Now, we're we're not going to do that this time. We're actually, by God's grace, we're going to preach through the whole book of Acts. But let me just try to unpack why it's so difficult. The book of Acts has so much beautiful but difficult to communicate repetition. If you've been in your community groups going through the book of Acts with us, it's this pattern that happens again and again of God the Holy Spirit advancing the mission of the church, people meeting Jesus, folks getting healed, demons getting cast out, and then resistance comes, right? It's like that's the pattern. The gospel goes forward, resistance happens, the church suffers, and then in the midst of suffering, the church expands and grows. And that just happens like throughout the book of Acts. It keeps happening and keeps happening and keeps happening. And so for some of you, you're like, hey man, um, these sermons are all starting to sound the same. So welcome to my world, right? Like they sound the same because what Luke, the historian is doing is he's given us this inspired accounting of what happened in the infancy of the church. And I think what's so important about that is if you've ever raised kids, like little kids and toddlers and children and teenagers they need repetition, correct? Like you have to say the things again and again. You have to keep having the talks again and again. This is why I'm not a fan of having the sex talk. I'm a fan of like talking about sexuality a lot with our kids because repetition matters and conversation matters. And so what God the Holy Spirit does with Acts is he actually helps form the infant church through the writing of this doctor named Luke He helps form the the infant church through the use of divine-inspired, glorious repetition. And 2,000 years later, the church still needs that kind of repetition. We still need to be reminded again and again of who Jesus is. We need to be reminded again and again of what the mission is. And what we do on Sundays when we gather together is we practice practice Holy Spirit-filled repetition. We talk about Jesus every week. We sing about Jesus every week. We break the bread and drink the wine every week. We pray for the sick every week. And the reason we do that is because we're all prone to forget. During the week, there's all of these things that are pulling us away from being anchored and rooted and grounded in the beauty and glory and sufficiency of Jesus. And so today, as we open up the book of Acts, it is going to be repetitious, but that's okay. It's good to have some repetition of things that are beautiful and really matter. So take your Bible. This is Acts chapter 5. I'm going to read you a pretty big section, so follow along with me. This is Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. Now the rest dared, none of the rest dared join them. But the people held them in high esteem. 
And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitude of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. So God, the Holy Spirit is moving like crazy. People are being saved. Folks are getting healed. Verse 16, and the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Mission is advancing. Now you know that the resistance and the suffering is coming. Look at verse 17. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and they put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and they began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel. And they sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and they're teaching the people. And then the captain and the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with all your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and they wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care about what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodius rose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about 400 joined him. He was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census, and he, drove, and he drew some people away after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found to be opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. And they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. And they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Now, here's what's so helpful about this. The whole Bible is God's disclosure of who he is and what he's doing. 
See, I think what happens a lot of times is we open up this book and we see that it's got a bunch of different human authors and it was written over a really vast spread of time and it's broken up into 66 different books and we begin to think that there's really not a cohesive core to this document, to this inspired book. But the truth is the entire Bible is about who God is and what God is doing. Or to put it a different way, the whole Bible is about God's mission. And God's mission in Jesus, his great plan in Jesus to redeem and reconcile and restore all things in Christ is what the whole darn book is about. And when we get to the book of Acts, what we start to see is that there aren't two kinds of Christians, right? There there aren't Christians that are really passionate about following Jesus on mission and Christians that aren't called to the mission of God. In fact, track with me, when a person meets Jesus, they're invited to walk with Jesus by grace through faith. And in that journey of walking with Jesus, every single Christian who's ever lived, who's ever been born again, is invited to participate with their time and their talent and their treasure in God's giant cosmic mission to restore everything that we broke through sin. So think about it like this. Um, To follow Jesus means your singleness is now about the mission of God. To follow Jesus means that your marriage, if you're married, is about the mission of God. Your job is about the mission of God and your neighborhood's about the mission of God. And I think for some of us in the room, you might've been following Jesus for a while and reached this point in your life where you feel a bit stagnant. You're not really growing. Maybe you're not really impressed with Jesus anymore. And maybe you're just here and you're singing these songs and it just seems like writ ritual and you're going through the motions and your heart feels really disconnected from Christ. And I would just say one of the ways that that happens is when we start to think that the point of God saving you is just for you to have a personal walk with Jesus instead of you actually being invited in to the grand narrative of God's mission to absolutely change the world. So if you're a follower of Jesus and you're not following Christ on his mission, you're gonna stagnate. You're, you're gonna begin to grow numb in your affections for Jesus. You're gonna begin to miss out on some of the beauty of the Holy Spirit working in your life because you're actually not putting yourself in places and positions where you need to draw on the Holy Spirit for the mission of God. So every believer, every single Christian is called to follow Jesus in the regular rhythms of life and work and play and feasting and fasting in the mission of God. And what Luke does in this text is he actually gives us some really helpful guide rails about that mission. So if you're not a Christian today, we're really glad that you're here. This is a safe place to ask questions about Jesus. And what Luke is going to do today is point out some guide rails for mission that will help you know what it is as a non-believer that you're being invited into by Jesus. And if you're a Christian, you're wondering like, okay, man, I'm a CPA and you're talking about mission and I'm not planning on jumping out of a plane over China. Like, what, what do you have to say to me about my career and my life as it relates to the mission? Luke's going to help you, right? Like if you're a stay-at-home mom and you're trying to think through what does mission look like having kids that are in diapers and my house is chaotic and I'm just like, like mission for me right now is avoiding the temptation of just throwing Cheerios on the floor and walking, walking out of the house for a couple hours. Like 
How do I, as a mom, follow Jesus on mission? And I think what Luke is going to have here for these guide rails are just beautiful and helpful and important for all of us. So let me list these guide rails for you and try to touch these really briefly. The guide rails for mission, this invitation from God to follow Jesus in his great plan, includes these four things. First, we have to actually preach and enjoy the entirety of the gospel. We need to preach and enjoy the whole gospel. Um, Where do I get this? Look at verse 19. There's all of this pressure from jealous Sadducees, and they want the apostles to shut up about Jesus. And here's what happens. They get locked in prison, and an angel shows up. And look at what the angel says in verse 20. Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people, what? All the words of this life. Okay, here's what's happening. Um, I, I know for some of you, you might have this imaginary vision of the apostles where they were just like superhuman men that floated off the ground and never sinned and never struggled with fear. But the truth is, the apostles, though really unique in the great history and plan of God, they were just guys like us. They were men. They were normal, natural men. And here's what's happening. The Romans want to kill them. And the Jews want to kill them. And as they spread the mission throughout the book of Acts to the rest of the world, the pagans are going to want to kill them. So here's what's happening. Everybody wants to resist the message of Jesus because what's offensive about Christianity at its core is Christ. And so here's the temptation. If you just de-emphasize the fact that Jesus is God, the Jews are not going to be tempted to throw you in jail and kill you. And if you just de-emphasize the fact that Jesus is king, Caesar's not going to stress out about you because Rome doesn't care who you worship as long as you're willing to also sacrifice to Caesar. And if you want to get the pagans off your back, the pagans don't care who you worship or who you sleep with as long as you don't claim that what you're worshiping has any exclusivity. And so here they are, they're getting pressed by Rome and they're getting pressed by the Jews and they're getting pressed by the pagans and all they have to do to live normal lives and not suffer and get the trash beat out of them is just redact a little bit about who Jesus is. Just de-emphasize a couple of things and get along with everybody. And so this angel comes and angels are messengers of God. And the message of God to these apostles is, brothers, don't sell out. You need to preach the whole gospel and you need to enjoy the whole gospel because if you start to change the ingredients of the gospel, you'll never make it better. You'll only lose the beauty of it. The whole message of the gospel, as Paul said, is the wisdom of God for salvation. So here's what this means. Let me just try to give it to you quickly. When we talk about the whole message of this life, enjoying that for ourselves and sharing that with our city, we're talking about three things that have to do with Jesus. We're talking about the cradle of Jesus. We're talking about the cross of Jesus. And we're talking about the crown of Jesus. And when churches and denominations go really wrong, it's because they pull one of those threads out and neglect the other two. When things are beautiful on mission, it's when those three threads of the gospel, his cradle and his cross and his crown, all get woven together and we don't redact anything. So here's what I mean. Um, The cradle of Jesus is the great scandal of the Christian faith. And that's that human beings were so far from God in our sin. And yet so loved by God because of who he is. Instead of sending just another prophet or an angel, he sends his only begotten son who is God. And the scandal of Christianity is that 
Jesus, the Son of God, the eternal living God, took on flesh. And here's what happens at Christmas. It's just mind-blowing. What happens in that miracle of the incarnation is that Jesus takes on flesh and he is at the same time 100% God and 100% man. And this is breathtaking because this points to the reality that mission doesn't start with the Southern Baptist Convention or with Frontline Church or with sending people to Nepal. Mission starts with God. In fact, what Jesus does is the ultimate in missionary work. He leaves his home in heaven And he actually comes to planet earth that's broken and dysfunctional. He takes on flesh and makes himself weak and poor so that he could humble himself so that we could actually experience salvation. What this means is if we enjoy this and preach this, we're going to be reminded of the radical humility that should mark Christians' lives. Jesus, though equal with the Father, did not count equality as a thing to be clung to, but he empties himself and he comes to serve. He actually raises the dignity and value of human beings. Though we already had dignity and value as image bearers of God, God actually puts more value on humanity by being willing to become one of us, to take on flesh, to be a man. This means that every single human being has value, dignity, and worth. This means as Christians, we're not called to be served, but to serve. This means as Christians, whether going for you is literally like training as a couple in our church are doing right now to move overseas and try to reach unreached people groups, whether God calls you to that or God calls you to be a barista in Oklahoma City that actually loves her coworkers and tells them about Jesus, all Christians are called to go because we're called to look more like Jesus and Jesus is the one that is the sent one of the Father. Now, if that's the cradle, what's the cross? Well, the cross is the bloody, horrific death of Jesus that shows us just how holy God is and at the same time, just how loving and merciful God is. The cross is where God's justice and God's love collide together so that he could adopt people that were his enemies into his family. Jesus goes to the cross And he's hung from a cross, he that knew no sin. The only human being that's ever been a good person. And I know we live in this cultural moment where we think that everybody's a good person. As long as you compare yourself to Hitler and you're better than Hitler, you're a good person. But here's the reality. The only truly good person that's ever lived is Jesus. Jesus is the only one that loved the father with all of his heart and loved his neighbor as himself. And he's the only one that really ever kept the law. He's the only one that was really righteous. And what happens is that perfect one went to a Roman cross after being brutally tortured and all the sin of humanity was put on him. Like, Can can you just not just hear that again through religious ears? Can you hear that again in the weight of what it is? Our racism, our lust, our objectification of women, our murder, our pride, our arrogance, our tendency to worship everything in this world except the God that created it, all that was put on Jesus. The Father, in his love, sent Jesus, and Jesus, in his love, came to die in our place for our sins so that by his blood you could be forgiven and cleansed and washed and justified so that God in his holiness could also demonstrate his mercy and adopt you. 
And many Christians stop there, right? Like many of you were raised in a church where it was like, we talk about the cross and sometimes we talk about the incarnation, but we always tend to leave out the third part of the gospel. And that's the crown of Jesus. That three days after Jesus died, he literally and physically rose from the dead. He wasn't a disembodied spirit trying to spook people out. He had a body and he walked out of a tomb and he actually in history appeared to over 500 people at one time. And after 40 days of teaching, Jesus ascends into heaven and he's seated at the right hand of the father, not as one voice among many, but as the ultimate voice in the universe as King of Kings and Lord of Lords is the one with all authority and all glory and all power. Now, track with me. The first guide rail for mission for you and me is that we can't redact and tweak the gospel as we see fit. We need to love and preach the incarnation of Jesus. God came for us. And we need to love and enjoy and preach the cross of Jesus, that sin is serious and God had to pay an infinite price so that we could be forgiven. And what that means, frankly, is if you're a Christian and take sin lightly, you haven't really looked at the cross very often. Like, it's hard to take sin lightly when you think about the horrific death of Jesus to pay for sin. And then we want to talk often about the resurrection, that Jesus is alive, and we want to pray big prayers, and we want to go with courage and confidence that Donald Trump or Hillary are not the ones that ultimately get to decide the direction of human history. Jesus does. And that's freaking good news, right? Like, I just like, that just got me stoked. I'm going to wave a hanky. It's like, man, no, uh, they're not the king. Jesus is the king and he's working in history. And that means you can breathe and you can trust. And that even means in dark moments, And in pain and suffering, like we're going to read all through the book of Acts, his mission continues to go forward. So guide rail number one, preach and enjoy the whole gospel. Guide rail number two, and more quickly, I promise, guide rail number two is to be on mission requires the fear of God. Like we we actually need to have fear and reverence before God, because if you don't have the fear of God, the fear of man will keep you from ever living a life for the mission of God. Here's what I mean. Um, look at verse 27. When they, when they had brought them, they set them before the council. These are really powerful men that have a lot of authority. And the high priest questioned them, another really powerful man with a lot of authority, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, the name of Jesus. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. You did the opposite of what these really powerful men told you to do. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. Here's what's happening. The fear of man is bowing your knee for the approval and acceptance of others to keep peace and not rock the boat. The fear of God is caring more about the will of God than you care about anything else in the world. And what happens with these apostles is they actually are modeling for the early church. It's impossible to care ultimately what men think and follow Jesus on mission. Is anybody else starting to realize that in your life? Like it's really flipping hard to follow where Jesus is going to lead you and to let your family's opinion of you be what defines who you are or to let the opinions and thoughts of your coworkers make you cower in shame of the gospel. It's really hard to get to know new neighbors and to care so much what they think and be on mission to open your mouth and tell them the good news of Jesus if you ultimately are not more afraid of God's displeasure than the displeasure of your neighbors. 
So the fear of God is this beautiful thing. It's not this thing that crushes your freedom. The fear of God is this thing that actually sets you free to not be freaked out about the opinions of everybody around you. When you fear God more than men, you're able to have hard conversations and you're able to be celebrated at times and not let it go to your head. And you're able to be reviled at times and not let it absolutely devastate you because the only opinion that matters in the universe is the opinion of the living God. And if you belong to Jesus, his opinion is really beautiful towards you. He actually loves you and he's proud of you and you can obey him in freedom. This is in some ways the foundation for civil disobedience Like there are times where Christians actually have to step up and they have to fight against injustice. Um, This is what happens in in the beginnings of the civil rights movement in the U.S. People would stand up and say, hey, to fear God means that we actually have to see the value and dignity of all human beings. And that means I'm willing to be thrown in jail to stand against injustice because I care more about God, what he thinks than what you think. But this is also, and more important and relevant to today, this is also the foundation for social disobedience. And can we just admit, this is where we're cowards, right? Like social disobedience is being willing to have people think that you're a kook and a weirdo because your sexuality is surrendered to the lordship of Jesus. Like in a culture that thinks that celibacy is like the lowest level of hell, The fear of God is saying, hey man, you guys can think that all you want, but as a single Christian, celibacy is something that Jesus did as an act of love and obedience to the Father, and it's something I'm going to walk in by God's grace, even though you think I'm totally bizarre and from a different planet. Like, social disobedience is being willing to stand out as someone that's countercultural in the world in the way that you hire and fire your employees, in the way that you look at women, in the way that you treat your neighbors. Social disobedience is where the ethics of the kingdom of God start to become missional, where the people of God look different than the world. And what happens to drive that and to create that is caring more about what God thinks than what people think. So missional rail one, it's preach and enjoy the whole gospel. Missional rail two is we have to fear God more than men. Missional rail three, this guide rail number three, is that we actually have to realize that there's honor in dishonor. There's honor in dishonor. Look at verse 40. When they had called the apostles, they beat them. Can I just camp out here for a second? Any teaching that teaches and holds up a version of Christianity where all God has for you in this life is prosperity and blessing and always healing and always wealth and always celebration. I don't understand how they get that considering we worship a king who got murdered and we follow in the footsteps of apostles who all got killed. So they called the apostles and they beat them And they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. And then they left the presence of the council, listen to these words, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Okay, track with me. The third guide rail to follow Jesus on mission is that there's a blessing in being mocked and persecuted and in suffering for righteousness sake. There's a blessing in following Jesus even when that means that it caps your profits because of the way that you handle employees and money. 
There's something beautiful about following Jesus, even when that means that you have to fight for your wife's heart, even when you'd rather go somewhere else because the grass seems greener. See, receiving dishonor in this world for the sake of the name of Jesus is actually a beautiful blessing because it reminds us that this life is short and eternity is really long. And the truth is, if you follow Jesus very long, if you really listen to him and follow him, you're going to get dishonored. People are going to talk about you. People are going to make fun of you. Friends are going to leave you. There's going to be times of rejection because Jesus is going to lead you against the flow of culture. And you might not be like the apostles. You probably won't be. You probably won't be physically beaten. You probably won't be thrown in jail. But can I just promise you to follow Jesus in his kingdom, there's an upside downness to the path. It's the least seat. It's the servant of everyone that's the greatest. It's dishonor in this world that's actually honor in the kingdom of God. It's actually being willing to lose your reputation so that Jesus's reputation thrives and flourishes. It's actually being willing to risk loneliness in relationships for obedience to Jesus and following Christ. They see the dishonor as actually beautiful honor. Can I just say, like, I love you, and that's why I like to give you the fine print. I don't want to be that guy that tells you that Jesus is a means to an end. If you just worship Jesus, he'll get you all the stuff you need to be happy. I want to be that guy that tells you every single week, Jesus is not the means, he's the end. He is the treasure. And and can I just tell you, man, you're just not promised popularity. You're not promised that you're always going to get healed. You're not promised that you're always going to have enough money. You're not promised that everybody's going to celebrate you. And can I just say in this cultural moment, we're not promised that Christendom is going to perpetually last in the West. Here's what you're promised. If you have Jesus, you literally have everything. If you have Jesus, you're safe, you're secure. If you have Jesus, every bit of suffering and every tear gets redeemed to be something beautiful. If you have Jesus, the father won't waste one single difficult moment in your life. All of those moments get redeemed and made into something beautiful. Like, the the honor of dishonor is being willing to follow Jesus even where he takes you, even when he takes you someplace you'd rather not go. And then lastly, I'll end with this. The last guide rail is to follow Jesus on mission. And and this is so important in this cultural moment in Oklahoma City. To follow Jesus on mission requires both going to church and being the church. It's going to church and it's being the church. Um, A lot of young, hip, missional guys are like, don't go to church, be the church. And and I get where they're coming from, but I I just think it's wrong. I actually think, you know, like... I appreciate that. I just don't think they're right about it because what we see in the New Testament is that the mission of God is this beautiful combination of what happens when the church gathers and what happens when the church scatters between Sundays. Let let me show it to you in the text. Um, Two places. Look at verse 12. It says, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. So early on in the beginning of the church, there are these moments where all the believers in Jerusalem are gathering, most likely on the Lord's day, remembering the death and resurrection of Jesus. They're gathering together for training and equipping to experience the power of God in teaching and in community with each other. Now, let me show you another. Look look down at verse 42. 
And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. What what am I pointing out? Well, it's in the temple. That's the church gathered. They were gathering in the temple. And it's house to house. That's between Sundays. So to be on mission requires that you actually, as a follower of Jesus, come to feast on the grace of God in communion so that you can be strengthened, to sit under the preaching of the word. Part of the mission of God is that a lot of people meet Jesus when we bring our friends that don't know Jesus with us to church. Can can we just take a quick poll in all of our congregations? If you met Jesus because some Christian invited you to a service where somebody was going to preach the gospel, can you just raise your hand? A whole lot of the people in our church met Jesus because somebody loved you and loved Jesus enough to say, hey, come with me because some joker is going to be talking about Jesus and he's not great, but Jesus is awesome. You need to hear this, right? We need to gather, gathering to train and gathering to repent and gathering to grow. Um, I can't even describe to you guys how badly I miss you and what happens in my soul when we gather when I'm out of town for two weeks. Like, I miss breaking bread with you. I miss singing the gospel with you. I miss praying with you. And I have a great relationship with Jesus on my own, and that's important, but there's nothing that actually replaces gathering together with the saints and worshiping and hearing the good news of Christ. But it's not just Sunday. It's also and house to house. That's why every week we say, hey, you got six days between now and next Sunday. Don't waste them. Let them be six days of loving God, loving people, pushing back darkness, because we want to be on mission all week long. It's like breathing. We want to gather and we want to scatter, and we want to gather and we want to scatter, and we want to gather and we want to scatter, and we want that to be the rhythm of our life because it's really critical to the mission of God. 